Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. You want to have the Word of God in your lap? So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians this morning, page 987 on my Bible. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what, what it is on yours, but 2 Thessalonians, we're uh, starting a new sermon series this morning entitled Stand Firm, Stand Firm, 2 Thessalonians. The, the, the whole title theme comes from what I believe is to be the key verse in the entire letter, which is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is telling this church, um, you know, that they need to stand firm and hold on to the traditions that they were taught. Now, what you have to understand is those traditions, what he's talking about is not the human traditions of religion that we ourselves, you know, partake of. And, you know, he's not saying, oh, you guys better make sure you, you, you celebrate all these festivals and different things like this and that we've made up. None, none of that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, you know, the traditions of Judaism either. He's not talking about following the law or anything like that. He's talking about the traditions that Jesus himself laid out for the church. He's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about what it means to be a Christian under the new covenant. So those traditions, those things, and the word of God was literally being written by Paul, by Peter, by these, the apostles during this time. So he's talking about those traditions. And so he says, you got to make sure that you hold, that you, that you stand firm. That word literally means, uh, it, it's, it's, in, it's a present tense active voice, imperative command that means to stand figuratively in faith and duty. It means to persevere, to stand firm. Notice he goes on and he says, hold, literally, keep a strong grip on what? The traditions, on the Word of God. The Word of God. It's a sure foundation, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is our sword and our shield, our offense and our defense. The Word of God is what we stand firm and hold on to. Amen? It's the Word of God. Now, this letter is, is written to encourage the believers in Thessalonica to stand firm. Why? Why do they need to stand firm? Because they're being rocked by the heavy persecution that they're experiencing, and they're also being misled by some of the misunderstandings that they have relating to the coming of Christ and what happens to um, those who died prior to Christ's coming. That's the entire purpose of why he is writing this letter. He's telling them to stand firm in the things that they taught them regarding persecution. I don't know if you know this or not. If this is a newsflash, okay. But here's the thing is that persecution is a, a standard for the Christian. Don't let persecution of the church or persecution in your life fool you into thinking something's wrong in your life. That is standard. How do we know? Because Jesus himself said that. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep 
yours. What is he saying? He's tying the concept of persecution with what? His word. He said, you keep my word, you're going to experience persecution. Why? Because a servant isn't greater than his master. So he tells us that if we're really walking like Jesus walked, we're going to ruffle people's feathers. It's going to be a problem. And, and listen, you don't have to purposely do that. Some of you think that's your, your goal in life is to ruffle as many feathers as you can. I just got to get out there and ruffle people's feathers. Please don't do that. But listen, here's what you do need to know is that when you walk with Jesus, as Jesus walked, you're going to ruffle people's feathers. And, and we see this, listen, outside of religion, we see this in politics all the time. You can't hardly make a comment without ruffling somebody's feathers about something. Well, I was just trying to be innocent. I make a comment. Next thing you know, you're getting blasted by all these different people. Listen, much more is the case as it relates to Christ. When you truly walk out, the way that Jesus walked out, people are going to have a problem with it. So as Pastor Brian said not too long ago in his last sermon, I believe, he said, listen, it's not so much that we should worry if we are experiencing persecution, but actually we should pretty much be worried if we're not experiencing persecution because that means that we're no threat. We're no threat to the enemy. We're no threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so what, what we need to be concerned about is, is walking the, the way that Jesus told us to walk, and that will ultimately yield, uh, you know, some rejection in our life. And we don't like that, but, but that's just what's going to happen. Jesus himself was rejected by many. Almost everybody he came encounter with. Only a few people were willing to follow him. This is Jesus. Many people think you are going to follow you. Probably a little less than Jesus. I'm just saying. I know you're awesome, but, you know, just maybe just a few, few less than Jesus. So here, here, the ultimate thing is, is that, we need to live out our lives not in a way that would please man, but in a way that would please God. And that's going to ultimately bring some, some difficulties in our lives, but that's okay. Now, this is what Paul wants to reassure this church of, that, that the persecution they're experiencing isn't is, is abnormal. It's normal. This is something that Christians are going to deal with. Uh, you know, Jesus also said something about, about this standing firm idea about persecution and, 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 and standing firm in that and you're going to have that. He, he also um, told us that, you know, this will ultimately deter determine whether we're, whoa, my little uh, older here didn't hold that. But this will ultimately uh, determine whether we really are in the faith or not. What, what happens when we're persecuted? How we deal with persecution? What do I mean? You remember the parable of the sower, right? Where Jesus said, hey, there's a sower that goes out and he sows on these different types of soils. And there's four different types of soils. All four of those soils represent a type of heart, right? And so he says there's a hard heart that is a hard path that when, it, when the seed is soiled on it, you know, it just sits. It doesn't even make it down into the ground. So the bird comes and steals the seed away because it can't get in. That's a hard heart. He goes on to talk about, you know, a, a thorny heart, a heart that's so concerned about all the things that are going on in the world that they're divided and they're, they're not sure who they really want to follow. That's a, the divided heart, a thorny heart, right? And then he talks about one that's found in rocky soil, one that he says in, in Mark chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a, a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
What Jesus is saying is that there's a type of heart that hears the gospel and says, yes, I like that. I believe that I need that. I need the blood of Christ. I need forgiveness because I, I, I feel that conviction in my heart, and yet they're not rooted. They haven't fully committed to Christ. They have received the gospel. They thought it was great, and when all was well, and you know they, they got an emotional high and all of that kind of stuff, and it was awesome and, and everything, and then life happened. They said, whoa, what happened? I thought this Christianity thing took care of these difficulties in life. Oh, wrong. Actually, your difficulties in life just begin when you become a Christian. It's not the opposite. You know, there's gospel pre preachers out there that will say, uh, you know, they water the gospel down and say, just accept the gospel. God will give you whatever, you whatever you want and all these different types of things. That's not true. God will give you what you need. And sometimes we need persecution. Sometimes we need the difficulty. Sometimes we need that too. Why? Why? Because, you know, again, James says it in James chapter 1, verse 2. It helps us. It shows us where we stand with the Lord. It, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you, know that, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. These, these persecutions, these trials, God is revealing your faith. He's revealing your faith, not because he needs to know where you are, because you need to know where you are. And perhaps, you know, when you hit one of those areas in your life where it, it, it becomes a little bit hard, you know, that you're not, you, you realize quickly maybe you're not as further, further as long as you thought you were. You're not as deep in Christ as you thought you were. So the Lord wants, isn't that awesome that God would, like, tell us the truth? Like, he wouldn't just let us go on. Like, he's, he's not like, I, I'm, let me give you an example. The other day, my, my son and I were in our, um, in our bedroom, and we were, I was throwing the ball, and he was trying to hit it with a little, uh, little cardboard, you know, uh, tube or something. And it was, it, my wife was super happy about it. But anyway, we were, I was throwing it, and he, he went to swing, and I go, dude, you suck. You, I'm not, and my wife's like, no, you're awesome. And I go, dude, you want to lie to the kid and tell him he's awesome? He's not awesome. He can't hit the thing. Dude, you suck, but you could be better. You could be better. I'm not going to sugarcoat the thing. You suck, but you could be better if you would practice. If you practice, it will be good for you. That's God. I believe that's how God is with us. I don't think God is up there going, well, here's your little trophy, buddy, because you tried real hard and stuff. No, God really wants us. <laughs> God literally will be honest with us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. You see, love, real love, doesn't tell you what you want to hear. Real love tells you what you need to hear. And so God, God will do that to us. He'll tell us, listen, if you're not as strong as you think you are, you're not walking as closely to God as you think you are, let me show you this. Now, I will preface that with this statement. It doesn't mean that he causes what happens in your life. Like he was the instrument of whatever happened. Sometimes he does. That's for him to determine. He gets to deal with the, that's too, that's over my pay grade, but he gets to deal with that kind of stuff. He gets to determine what he's going to do and what he's going to use from the enemy in your life to do, right? That, that's between him and, and, you know, himself, I guess. But ultimately, we're not saying that God causes, you know, everything to make your life hard 
what we're saying is God uses everything that is hard in your life to show you where you are because he loves you. And so, you know, as a Christian, we're going to experience difficult times and we're going to experience tribulations and we're going we're to experience trials and different things that are meant to test our faith to show us where we are. And what Paul is saying to this church is when you get in those moments, stand firm. Stand firm. You know, when you, when you find yourself in a difficult spot, don't start freaking out. Just stand firm. Hold fast to the traditions. Hold fast to those things in which you have been taught. I love Pastor Chuck. He said this. He said, listen, when you encounter the things that you don't understand, fall back on the things that you do understand. You're going to encounter things in life that are so hard, and you're going to say, God, why? Why are you doing this? Hey, what we need to do in those moments is say, God, I don't know why, but I trust that you love me, that you're for me, that this is for my good, even though I can't see that. Why? Because that's all in the Word of God. And so we lean back on to the things that we understand about God, who He is, and what He's doing in our lives. This, this is a second letter that Paul's writing to this church in, in Thessalonica. The first letter came some months after, just a, just a few months after the first letter. Paul writes this second letter to the Thessalonians, and it's sort of just a, a continuation of what he's been saying. They're, they're, they haven't really fully received uh, the, the information from the first letter, right? So he comes with Timothy, and, and then they, he hears about all the, the troubles that are going on there, and so he, he sends a letter to them, and he says, listen, I know you guys are struggling with three things. I know you're struggling with, um, number one, persecution. I, I know that you're struggling with um, false teachers that have come into the church and told you that what I'm preaching is, is a false gospel that ultimately is for my own benefit, not for you. And, and number three, I know that you're highly concerned about those people who have died, who have perished before the return of Christ because you don't understand the, the theological you know, nuances of how that works when somebody dies prior to Christ coming. You don't know where they go. And so he writes this letter, and he kind of, we went through this a few months ago. If you missed it, you can pick it up on our website. But uh, we went verse by verse through First Thessalonians. And Paul talked about every one of these things, and he brought, uh, you know, some comfort and peace to them by bringing information. He brought information, which information ultimately will build faith. So he brings the word of God to them, and that's meant to build their faith. He didn't say that it was going to take all these things away. What he said was, here's the, here's the real deal about this. Here's what you need to understand about, you know, persecution, what you need to understand about my message, where it came from and all, and then ultimately what happens when you die prior to Christ's coming. And so they haven't fully grasped this. They haven't put their minds around what, what he said, so he writes a second letter. And, uh, you know, he, this time he's talking primarily about persecution. The second coming of Christ will spend a good period of time in chapter 2. And we're really going to get to understand about the Antichrist, about the tribulation period, about all of those things that relate to the, um, the end times, and, and, um, which, by the way, we're very close to these times, I believe. But, uh, you know, so it's going to be an awesome time of a study here through 2 Thessalonians. But, but the third thing that he he actually addresses in this letter, finally, is, is this deal about people that are idle or unruly in the body of Christ. There's something going on in this church now that he's heard about that he says that I, I need to address this further. Now, he already addressed it 
a little bit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, 14, he said, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish them. Make sure you're speaking into their life and telling them that is not okay. You correct them. You tell them. You, you, you exhort them to do the right thing. But notice what he says at the end of that verse. Be patient with them, though. Be patient with them. Now, the, the tables have turned a little bit, you know, some couple months or maybe even up to a year later as he writes this letter. And now he's going to tell them, don't have anything to do with them. And we'll get to that when we get into the chapter 3. But you could outline, if you would like to take notes on this, you could outline this letter like this. It's perfectly divided into chapters. Chapter 1 could be titled, Encouragement in Persecution. Chapter 2 could be entitled, Enlightenment about the coming of the Lord. And chapter 3 could be entitled, Exhortation to Christian Living. So you could break this up like that. It's real simple. But Paul's entire point in writing to these folks was to encourage them to keep fighting the good fight and uh, to continue to press on and not to grow weary in doing good in the midst of their persecutions. Listen, th that's tough to do when, when life is hard. It's for us to continue to maintain our Christian walk. Sometimes we just want to lay down and give up. And that's what he's exhorting this church not to do. Don't give up. Don't lay down and give up. And there's been many, many Christians who have literally laid down on the job because they're so tired from the testing of their faith. The trials are so overwhelming that, you know, we, we've allowed, um, you know, them to become the, the toppler for us. And we, we just kind of lay down and give up. Listen, if that's you today, God wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage you that he's given you the faith. He's given you the strength. He's given you what you need to stand firm in these moments. No matter what it is, you, you could list a, a gazillion different circumstances and what God will tell you is, I'm sufficient for you in these moments. I'm sufficient for you. I don't care what it is that you're going through. He is sufficient for you and he wants to encourage you to stand firm and to, to walk through this in faith and to trust him through it. Stand with me and let's read our passage for today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Here's what Paul says. Verse 1, Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we ask you to speak into our hearts today. Help us, Lord. Uh, speak faith into our hearts, Lord. Use your word to transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This, this introduction is, is kind of interesting. Um, and I want to relate it to how we measure church. Because I believe Paul gives us some insight on this. You know, the measurement of a flourishing church in our culture is found in all kinds of external things. It's found in the number of people who attend. It's found in the size and glamour of the buildings that we meet in. 
the, the number of programs that we have, the talent of our worship teams, the, the cloud of our pastors. This is just to name a few things. Sadly, these measurements are man-made measurements and not God's. Uh, accordingly, this church in Thessalonica and most churches in biblical times would have been considered duds according to modern-day measurements. We don't read about massive amounts of people showing up in Thess Thessalonica here to their worship gathering. Uh, we, we don't read about, if they had a big church, we don't, we don't read about it. Um, we, we do know that they're a flourishing church, but, but it's not to say that it was a big church. Nor do we hear or mention any of their fantastic facilities or programs for their children or youth or young adults or singles or married men's and women's and home fellowships or the like. We don't hear of the talent of their worship team, nor, listen, is the pastor's name even worth mentioning. In spite of all of that, that lacks in the modern-day measurements of what a flourishing church would look like, Paul says this in verse 4. We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. By the Apostle Paul's standards, the church in Thessalonica was a church to be proud of. It was a church to be proud of. There are four specific things that Paul mentions here that I believe that we should use as standards as it relates to considering what is a church that we should be proud of and what is not. The first thing that he mentions here is that a church to be proud of is a church that is in God. Look at verse 1 there. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonica, our Thessalonians and God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So by, by way of reminder, Paul is telling us he's the writer. He's also with Silas or Silvanus and also Timothy. They're the ones that also were with him when they first planted this church. These guys put their lives on the line for the believers in Thessalonica. They went in there with the gospel. They ruffled a bunch of people's feathers. And for like three weeks, they, they were able to teach these guys about the gospel uh, as much as you can teach in three weeks or so. And then they were kicked out. They, they, were, um, they, they were so... Uh, you know, effective in the evangelism there that they got the Jews upset with them and the, the Gentiles were mad and, and so they, they got kicked out. Now, you can imagine how amazing it would be to be Paul, Silas, or Timothy and to be looking backwards and considering how God used you in the lives of these people. Why? You simply were doing what he asked you to do. You were going into all the world and you were proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has come. And look what happened. God used them. God can use you. These guys are examples of what God wants to do in all of our lives. He wants to use us to go into the world to tell people about Jesus. And so these guys are being faithful to that call. And, all of, uh, you know, and we look at it and we find that they are being fruitful in their ministry. They are compelled to do this by the love of Christ. And, and so Paul and Timothy and Silas, they're writing to the church of Thessalonica. Listen what Paul says, key verse, key word right there, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These guys are in Christ, as it were. They are, they are a church to be proud of because they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you tell if a church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you tell that? Because it says it's a church? Because they gather and they sing songs and they 
you know, do different things because it's a religious organization and that's, you know, that's what we think is in Christ? No, there's some distinct things that you can tell whether or not a, a church is in God or not in God. You know, and, and, and here's a few questions that you can ask yourselves. Do the people and the pastors mention the name Jesus often? Do they mention the name Jesus often? Listen, you can go to some churches in this world today and never hear the word of Jesus. They hold a Bible. They, they, they launch, prad, preach. They, they, they may read a verse, but you never hear the name of Jesus. You never hear the name of Jesus. That's sad. Is the cross talked about? Do they mention sin and hell and damnation? Do they talk about the beauty of the gospel and what God has done for us? These are some simple questions that we can ask. We can tell if a church is really in God, if the people are abiding in Christ and walking in Christ. You know why? Because all of those questions are gospel-related questions. Do you care about the lost? Does the church care about lost people? Listen, your first mandate, your first priority as a believer is to love lost people, to care about lost people. You know, um, actually, I would say your first mandate is to grow because you can't love people unless you're growing in Christ, right? So our, our whole mandate, our whole vision for the church is grow, go, give, right? To grow, you got to grow in the Lord so that you can go in the Lord and so that you can give in the Lord. But you, it all starts with you growing first. But then you got to have to be going. There should be a heart for lost people in your lives. I'll, I'll tell you a story when I was a young believer that I asked the Lord, I don't sense really like a super anguish over lost people. I don't know why. It's not something that I, you know, I love people. I care about people. But I don't sense this overwhelmingness that I think I probably should as a believer. Like, you know, if I'm really looking out at the world like Jesus did, I, I would think I would have a passion for lost people. And the Lord, so I said, Lord, will you show me what that's like? Will you, will you help me to see the world through your eyes? And, and so I prayed that, and um, literally, I'm not kidding, like 10 minutes later, I'm driving to my job, and I look in the rearview mirror of the guy sitting in front of me at a stoplight. You know what the guy's doing? He's got a can. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know this, what he was doing, because I do, but... He had a can, and he, and, he, and he had it, and he was doing this. He was smoking pot in his car on his way to work at 8 a.m. And the Lord, in that moment, revealed to me, that's the best it gets for that guy. That, that's the best it gets for that guy. And I just started weeping. I said, Lord, he doesn't understand what you have for him, that he would have to get high on his way to work, right? That he would have to take some sustenance or, or do something in order to feel some sort of normality or, or just feel connected in some way, Lord. He doesn't understand who you are. And the Lord in that moment literally just revealed to me, this is what it's like to be me. My heart breaks for people. I love people. If you've never, ever felt that sense of love for the lost, you need to pray to God today, God, will you reveal that to me? I want to have that heart because, why? Because that's his heart. That's his heart. And that heart is not, 
some of you are naturally kind of loving and you just, you're just a caring person. Some of us are not. Some of us have to pray double, like fast and pray <laughs> to get that kind of love. But, but listen, all of us need to have a supernatural love to love like that, to love like Jesus loves ultimately. And so, you know, do, do, do they have a heart for lost people? That's what, what a church in God should have a heart for lost people. What about what, what are they saying in the pulpit? Is it more about what's going on in culture and, and social issues and all these kinds of other things? Are we teaching the word of God? Is it about the scriptures? Do they, do they mention a scripture or do they teach the scriptures? There's two different things. To mention God and to teach about God are two different things. You can't stand firm in your faith if you have not the word of God in your heart. You need something of substance. You need something that is going to, going to be an anchor in times of trouble for you. You need the word of God because it will give you hope in hard times. How do you know a church is in God? Because it teaches the word of God. It cares about what God thinks, not what man thinks. Paul goes on here and he says, listen, this is also a church that is, that is in the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. I love that Paul always puts grace before peace. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. And we, you know, it's kind of a little interesting. It's just a little, little saying that they would say, you know, grace and grace is a, a way to say hello and uh, the Greek and, and shalom or peace is the way you say it in, in Hebrew. And so these are two different cultures. And so he's teaching to both the cultures and he's saying grace and peace. I think this is way bigger than that. This is talking about the grace of God, which leads to the peace of God. You can't have the grace of, you can't have the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. The grace of God is Jesus Christ coming down and you receiving him as your personal savior, which ultimately brings you into right standing with God and you receive his peace. It's grace first, then the peace of God. This, this church was a church that was in God, truly converted. This was a church to be proud of. Secondly, a church to be proud of is a church that is full of people growing in their faith. Look at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God to, for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Okay, what is faith? What does it mean to grow in your faith? We don't have to define it because the Bible defines it for us. In Hebrews chapter 1, 11, verse 1, it says, the, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Summarized, it's assured conviction. Assured conviction. Assured, which is the basis of trust and relationship. You're assured. It's, it's what you're holding on to. The conviction is the evidence or the proof. See, the world thinks that what you and I are doing is blind. They think that what you're believing is blind faith. Like there's no, there's no assurance, there's no evidence, and so it's just total blind faith. That is not the case. In fact, evolution is far more blind. Evolution is blind. But to believe in God and to believe in, in, in Jesus and all that he's done for us is, is, is not blind faith. It's biblical faith. It's assurance that comes from the Word of God, and that Word of God then brings us to a place of conviction, which is the proof that we hold on to. That is faith. That is faith. And these people were growing in their faith. The Word of God, 
How do we grow in our faith? It's through the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This church was grounded in the traditions or the Word or the Apostles' doctrine, all the same thing, all the, the same idea. If you want to have a growing faith, then you need to grow in the Word of God. You can't say, I don't understand why I can't handle this situation if you're not doing anything to prepare yourself for that. That would be silly. That would be like going into a weightlifting contest and never going into the gym to prepare for it. How ridiculous would that be? I'm going to win this contest. I've not lifted a weight in 16 years. You know, okay, good for you, man. Go for it. Let's see. You're going to pull something. We're going to get the ambulance ready for you. So let, let's prepare for that. Listen. We need to grow in the Word of God. We have the resources. The question is, are we utilizing? Think of it like this. Imagine that you have an ATM card that has an unlimited amount of money in, in, the, in the bank. So literally, you can go and use this ATM card to do whatever it is that you want to do. You, no matter how much you spend, you cannot spend what is in the storehouse, right? So you could just go and do whatever you want, never worry about it. You just pull the card out, and you run it through, and it's, it's good as gold, and you never, ever have to question it. How ridiculous would it be for you to leave that ATM card on your coffee table, your nightstand, or your bookshelf, all the while having no food in your house, having no heat in your home, having no water to drink or bathe in? And that's what many do with the Word of God which is this, the, the, this unlimited supply of, 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 of resources that we have through the Word of God. It's our food. It's our comfort. It's, it washes us and refreshes us to grow in our faith, and yet so many people leave it sitting on the nightstand or the coffee table or the bookshelf and never, ever really go for it and access it. Listen, you have... All that you need for life and godliness. All that you need, it's, it's in the Word. You want to grow in your faith. There is no other Bible verse that says, hey, here's an additional, here's another way that you can grow in your faith. Just in case you don't like that one, let me give you one more. So here, here's one that's a, maybe a little easier for you. No, he says you got to work at it a little bit. you got to put some effort into it. God says, I have given you everything you need. All you have to do is step into it. It's like all you got to do is take a step Grab the book, open it up, and just start reading and see what God will do. Man, he will meet you where you are. He will do incredible things. I, I, start, I was doing this devotion with my kid not too long ago, and um, I just got it, and I, I, it, was, it was a pretty neat little devotion. So I, I grab it, and I'm like, we're, we're reading it, and like the fourth day in, he goes, Dad, <laughs> everything that I'm dealing with is like in this book, like every day. And I'm like, yeah, because it's the Word of God. It's not, this this devotion is not the Word of God, but the verses that he's using, it's like, and then he's expounding on them, he's like, it's exactly what I'm going through. That's the way the Word of God works. My son's learning that he can trust God's Word. He can trust the Word of God. You can trust the Word of God. And if you put, put, in, um, if you put this into practice and you start to make it a discipline in your life to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and make it your food, Make it something that's important. You're going to see incredible results. Paul says, um, li listen to what he says here, though. He says, you know, we, we, these people are growing in their faith, but notice what he says in the up front of that verse. He says, but we ought to always give thanks for God for you. 
He tells us, he tells us you know, the, the reason why we should give thanks to God always is we ought to. That literally means that we owe. It's, it's an indebtedness to God. We ought to always give thanks to God. When's the last time you thank God? When's the last time you gave thanks to God for what he's doing in your life? Whether that was him giving you strength to get through some difficult trial, or maybe it was for him busting you in some sin and bringing some relief that way. Or maybe it was the benevolence of God that he's shown you over and over and over again. Paul says, man, we, got, we ought to. It's an obligation. We ought to give God thanks always for every situation, no matter what. A church to be proud of is a church that's in God, that's growing in faith, and also who is increasing in love. Look at the last part of that verse there. And the love of every one of you uh, for one another is increasing. Love is an important measurement of true conversion. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you were converted in Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit, and then God's love is poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. This is a, an evidence of salvation. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Galatians 5, verse 22. You can't be born again and not have God's love flowing through you. You cannot. In fact, 1 John, this is what we're going verse by verse through with the youth group currently. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, nails this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, uh, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love, then, is the epitome of Christianity. Love. It's, it's the expression uh, of Christ to us. Love. It's God is love. And so we are called to love one another. It's a command to love. Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verse 34. He said, a new command I will give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the commandment that Jesus gave there is not new in the sense of love. Love has always been the premise from day one. God has told Israel they're supposed to love people. It's always been, uh, you know, the message from God has always been about love. It's, that's not the new commandment. The new commandment that Jesus gave in John chapter 13 is that you should love like he loves. The new commandment is like I have loved you. That's the new part. The old part is you should love. The new part is like me. How, how did Christ love us? He loved us sacrificially, unconditionally, abundantly. And he tells us that this is the kind of love that we're supposed to have for one another. This isn't a human love. This is a Holy Spirit fruit kind of love. We have to have the fruit of the Spirit in our life in order for us to love the way that Christ is telling us to love. 
It also requires a willingness to die to self and make the focus on others in our lives. That's what Jesus did. That's what this church was doing. They were loving one another. They were sacrificially, abundantly, you know, giving themselves over to one another. They were growing in their, in their love for one another. Here's the danger. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, which if you know anything about eschatology, that is the, 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 these are the, the, the verses that talk about what it's going to be like in the end times. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12. The love of many will grow cold. God's church, the love of many will grow cold. People, people who, uh, you know, say they're Christians or whatever, how do you know? By their love. By their love. The love of many is going to grow cold in the end. They're, the Lord is not going to allow people to be deceived into thinking they have something that they don't. So he's going to reveal in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. What does that suggest? That suggests that there are many, many people who think that they have something that they don't. And that's what the Lord is telling us. Beware. You know, if you don't have a love for anybody, you don't love the Lord, you don't love his word, you don't love his people, you got to ask yourself if you're really a believer, right? I mean, like, what happened to me? That sounds just like I was before I came to Christ. If I've never, is there, you know, the Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Something happened, you know. The Holy Spirit came inside. How could you not change if you were a believer? God fills you with love. So we, we need to let that love flow through us. And some of us need to work at that, man. We need to ask the Lord. That we, it's, it's not so much that we're not a believer. It's that we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us the way that he wants to. You know, we, gotta, we have to die to ourselves. It's not about you. You were crucified with Christ. no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. A church to be proud of is a church in God, growing in faith, increasing in love, and finally persevering. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God and your steadfastness and faith and all the persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring. There are those that would say that, you know, the, the three virtues that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. They would say like, hey, that's great, but in these passages, Paul mentions, you know, that there is faith, that they have faith and that they have love, but unfortunately, their, their hope is gone. They have lost their hope because... You know, they're, they're not standing firm, and so Paul has to tell them to stand firm. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, I don't see that at all. In fact, I see that this is a church that is, has hope, that there is hope here. That these are, this is a church that Paul is boasting about to all the other churches that he goes around, and he's telling them about what? Their steadfastness and faith in their persecutions and in all the afflictions that they are enduring. You can't be steadfast without some hope, right? I mean, hope is what kind of keeps you steadfast. It's what gives you the anchor. It's what helps you to, uh, to, to believe in what you're believing. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Even though these folks were dealing with an incredible difficulties, they remained faithful and were persevering. And the promise, according to what we just read in Romans chapter 5, is that they would get character and hope. Now, I know some of you guys are suffering greatly today. 
you're suffering and, and, and all kinds of different trials that you're going through. And listen, my heart weeps for you. But also, at the very same time, I rejoice. Because at the end of the day, that promise is for you too. The Bible says endurance produces character and character produces hope. God has not left you out to dry. He's not left you hung to dry. Like, you figured out. I'm, I'm done with this. You're too much work, you know. No, that's not, that's not what he's done at all. In fact, what he's trying to do is utilize whatever you're going through to produce a little character, which is ultimately going to help you trust him even further and even more. So I want to encourage you today, man. Take that verse and hide it in your heart and say, Lord, I will rejoice in my sufferings because I know that they produce endurance and endurance is going to produce character and not just any kind of character. We're talking about Christ kind of character, the kind of character that Jesus himself had, that kind of character. And then that character will ultimately produce hope. Produce hope. This, this church is, it says that they are steadfast. Do you know the word endure in Romans chapter 5 and that word here in first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, ver, uh, verse 4, verse, chapter 1, verse 4? Steadfastness is the exact same Greek word. Endurance, steadfastness is the same word. He's telling them that they are in the midst of uh, gaining character and hope because of what they're going through. They are experiencing all kinds of persecution and afflictions, but what are they doing? They're enduring. They're enduring. The Bible says endure like a good soldier. Listen, we, we were called to a, 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 a walk of life that is not easy. And in fact, Jesus said, didn't he, when he said, look, and the, the road is wide that leads to destruction, and many go that way. But he said, the, 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 the road that leads to life, it's narrow. And he also said, it's difficult. It's a narrow path, and it's a difficult way. So don't lose hope. Just, just continue to walk, man, and continue to praise God because he knows what he's doing. And the promise for you as you continue to do that is you're going to become more like Jesus. Isn't that your prayer? God, I want to have the character of Jesus in my life. Do you think that just happened? The character of Jesus, like he was, he was born perfect, but he also grew. Do you know? Do you, do you notice that? Like when he was a kid and he was in the temple, it says that he grew in knowledge and wisdom. And so Jesus, like you and I, he grew. He grew in his understanding, and he grew in his wisdom, and he grew in his knowledge. And I have to imagine that he grew in his character. I have to imagine that he grew in all the same ways that you and I grow. The difference is he did it perfectly, but he did it. And so whatever it is that you're going through in your life, the Lord is growing you up. He's using it to produce that same character of Christ to also help to produce more hope in your life. God is at work in your difficulties and he's doing something far more than you realize. So be steadfast. Be immovable. And let him complete the work in you that he is desiring to complete. And then guess what? When you're done, you get to go home. That's the prize. He's the prize. One day, you get to go home. You get to be with the Lord. All of this passes away. You no longer have any, any of the same kind of difficulties and trials that you've ever gone through in your life. In fact, it will be paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And dude, it's going to be awesome. He didn't say that last part. I did. But just in case you were wondering, that's what I, I know the Bible to, to speak about heaven. It's going to be awesome. 
So God is preparing you right now for heaven. He's preparing you. He's, he's utilizing all the different things that you're going through in your life, and he's shaping you and changing you, and he is ultimately preparing you for heaven. So rejoice. Listen, don't consider your, your trials and your tribulations as just worthlessness. So like, God, I don't understand why you would do this to me. Why would you allow these things in my life? Because he, he wants to show you where you are so you can grow more in him. You know, I've said it all before, I'll say it again, that, you know, most of us, we're never going to ever mature. We're not going to go any further than we are unless we, get our, unless we get a little fire underneath our behinds to push us forward. That's just the way that we are. You know, oftentimes we feel like it's good enough, right? Like, I, I know enough about God. I know enough about his word. I, I know that, you know, I know the basics of it, and so I'm good. I get to go to heaven and all that. But God's calling you to wait something way more than that, way more than that. He's calling you to life transformation to become more like Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. That's not going to happen without any, some adversities, some, some trials, some, some difficulties, and all of those kinds of things. And here's what's awesome about this is not only is, is God going to do that work and he's going to shape and change you and make you more like Jesus, but he put you in a body, in, in a body as in a, a group of people that are called to do life with you. So you don't have to do this by yourself. Yes, he's with you and he'll, be, he'll walk you through all these different circumstances you're going through and all that kind of stuff, but he also put intangible people in your life so that they can encourage you too. So look around. There's brothers and sisters here that are here because God has planted you here and God has planted them here and he wants to connect you and say you're a family. Listen, in heaven, we're not going to go, we're not going to kind of just go about our own business and be like, I don't know who that guy is. I'm not talking to him. You know, no, I I think we're probably all going to be like, dude, what's up? Hey, how five? And then we're all be worshiping Jesus and and all that kind of stuff. There's not going to be that weirdness that we have now. You know, that we literally will be a family, but we're a family now. So we should practice that. We should be like, hey, I want to get to know people in this congregation. I want, to be, I want to be connected to the people that God has planted me with. You know, we're, we're all called to the same mission. We're all called to the same thing, and God wants to, uh, us to do life together. Listen, I can tell you one thing, that if I take a, a, a bag of charcoal and I stick it in a, um, a, a little charcoal grill, right, and I light that thing on fire and I, I let the flames go out, guess what? Those coals, because they're together, are going to continue to burn. But the moment I take one of those coals out and I set it off to the side, or two coals out, I set it off to the side, they're going to cool down while the rest of this maintains and continues to heat up. The illustration is clear as far as it relates to the body of Christ, man. Don't distance yourself from people. Press into people. Get to know people. Truly do life together with people. That's why you're here. This isn't like visitation, man. This is like family time. And then we should continue to do this outside these doors, amen? Hey, the worship team's gonna come forward and we're gonna close now, but I just wanna, wanna tell you that a church to be proud of isn't one that looks great on the outside, but it's one that is great on the inside. It's one that is, is literally doing what, what Paul says here, as he describes what, how, why he's so proud of this church. He's so proud of this church because 
listen, they're, they're a church that is in God. They're a church that's growing in their faith. They're increasing in their love, and they're persevering through their trials. And they're doing this together. In this culture, man, in biblical culture times, these people could not do this outside of each other. They had to cling together because that's all they had. You know, we live in a culture where we can pretty much do whatever we want. These guys lived in a culture where if you weren't a Jew or you weren't a Greek, you were outside. And if you were one, you were outside of the other. And if you were one, the other, then you were outside of that group. It was all compartmentalized and grouped out and all this kind of stuff just like the way that we do it. But the Christian group had to cling together with everything that they had. And you can say, oh, well, it was a new movement. They had to do that. No, that was God's intention. It's not because it was a new movement. It's because that's what God's intention is for Christianity, is that we connect together, that we love each other, that we grow in our faith, that we grow in our love, that we persevere together, not by yourself. Listen, if you're struggling, if you've got stuff going on in your life, let your family come around you and love on you. Let your family minister to you. You never know what God will do through something like that. Amen. We always end with prayer up front. If you want prayer, you can come up front. We're going to do communion uh, during this time. And you, what, we, what we're going to do today is you can come up and get your communion elements and, and all of that. But what I, what I want you to know, you can take it yourself at the altar. You can uh, take it to... Uh, you know, you can, you can take your family and take it back to your seat. Uh, for some of you that are like, hey, I don't know what communion is. I don't know what to do or anything like that. Listen, I'm going to be over there in that corner, and I'll lead you through it. I don't want anybody to feel, if you're not here, if you're by yourself, then come. I'll, I'll lead you through communion. You don't have to do that by yourself. But we want to take a moment and just personally thank God for what he's done through his son, Jesus. Listen, none of this would exist without Jesus. The forgiveness that we gain through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, would not have happened if God didn't love us the way that he did and he just sent his son. And so what we're doing today is recognizing what Jesus has done for us. There's a little piece of bread in that, on the bottom. There's a little cup of juice. And what we're saying is that bread represents the body of Christ. That juice represents the blood of Christ. And we are saying, thank you, God, for sending your son who was perfect in body, who spilt his blood to bring forgiveness for our sins. And as we partake of communion, that's what we're doing. We partake of the perfect body, which it's just a symbolic. It's not, doesn't, doesn't change or anything like that, but it's symbolic. But here's the most important thing you need to understand. You need to be a believer if you're going to partake in communion. Why? Because it's for believers. It's for people that identify with Jesus Christ and say, I believe that he paid his earthly body for me, that he was broken for me, that his blood shed for me, and that I have been washed by the blood of Christ. I've been clean. And you might say, well, I'm not a believer, but I want to be one. Well, guess what? You can right now. You can just accept Christ into your heart right now. This could be your first communion as a Christian. You could say, hey, I've done this before, but not as a believer. Well, right now you can do that. You can just say, God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and your son is that Savior. And I want to be washed clean this morning. I want to be forgiven for my sins. I, I want to I be in this body that you're talking about. I don't want to be connected like that. I want to have 
the peace that was spoken of here today. The way that you do that is you receive Christ into your heart. There's no magical words. It's all about a heart. It's about wholeheartedness to God and giving yourself up to Him. And you simply, a prayer like this. This is, Lord, I come to you now. I ask you to come into my heart. I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning to you right now. And I'm asking you to cleanse me of my sin. I believe that you took my place on that cross, that you died for me, that your blood was shed for me and then on, on the third day you rose again from the dead for me. And so I'm identifying with Jesus. I want to receive the life that he came to give me. And when you, re- that's the gospel. That's why Jesus came. And when you say those words by faith and you believe in your heart with everything that you have and you turn your life over like that, the Bible says he will by no means cast you out. He's not going to say, well, it's too much sin for me. I can't do it. Listen, you can't out the cross, folks. You can't outsin the cross. God isn't waiting for your life to get better. He needs to make your life better by coming through the cross. That's how it happens. So if that's you this morning, listen, come to Christ. There's guys up here that will pray with you. I'll also be in the corner, and, uh, you know, we can partake of communion over there if you, if you would like to. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, it is a is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. We thank you, Lord, for speaking into our lives this morning. We pray, God, that you would do, continue to do the work, salvation of sanctification in our hearts now as we are reminded of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us. He came in bodily form. He stepped out of heaven. He became a man. Just like us, he was tempted in every way, and yet he was sinless. We thank you for the body. We thank you for Jesus being willing to lay down his body for us. We thank you for the blood of Christ. Your word tells us there can be no forgiveness without the blood of Jesus. And so we, as we partake of that this morning, God, we thank you for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. We, we rem- we're reminded that there is no sin that Jesus can't wipe away with his blood. Will you forgive us for anything that might be in our hearts this morning, God? Will you cleanse us? We want to partake in a worthy manner this morning. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We give you all honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.